Hey, it's Jesse. Congratulations. You made it through 2018. Good job. It was a trying year for everyone. You had to get through natural disasters and crazy news cycles and, of course, many announcements from your favorite NPR hosts asking you to support your local public radio station. But you made it through it all. It's the end of the year. You're probably thinking about what is important to you, and I bet your local station is one of those things. It's easy to support your local public radio station, and when you do that, that's how we end up being able to make Bullseye and how NPR ends up able to make all of the great news, information, and entertainment programming they make, plus all the great local stuff that you get only from your station. You can support your local station right now. We're making it really easy. Here's how. Go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye. That's donate.npr.org slash bullseye. I promise you, this episode is the last time I say this to you, so this is the time to actually do it. Donate.npr.org slash bullseye. Thank you. Let's get the show started. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Even though there's moments where people go, oh, man, props, man, you really skewered them. You really gave it to them. To me, one of the things that I think has been missing from all this dialogue, especially because everything gets reblogged and, you know, so-and-so eviscerates the right and vice versa, is personal sort of empathy and putting your own skin in the game. That was this week's guest, Hassan Minaj. He's a stand-up comic, a former correspondent on The Daily Show, and he's a Muslim American. At the Republican National Convention, he went looking for some of that empathy. I thought if Trump were to become president, I'm going to get deported, so I just wanted to say goodbye to all the delegates from the states that I'll never get to visit. So I went up to, you know, the delegate from Alabama and gave her a big old hug and said bye. I had her sign my American yearbook. I asked her if she would be my pen pal in the camps. I don't know what type of Wi-Fi we'd get there. And so all that sort of stuff. But I wanted to look her face to face in the eye and go, I'm not just some esoteric number that you read in a Breitbart article or that you see in a Facebook status update about how Islam hates us and your brown neighbor has come to kill you. Like, look at me in the eye in this moment and you don't think... I'm a bad person, right? I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Hassan Minaj. The comic and former Daily Show correspondent once gave a speech at the Radio and Television Correspondents' Dinner. It was the first time he'd ever done anything like that. The crowd, mostly members of Congress, didn't exactly love what he had to say about Congress's ineffectiveness. Before the speech, he was a little worried about what he was going to say. Then he got some advice from former Daily Show writer Trayvon Free. You're not there to, like, make Mitch McConnell feel happy about himself. No one ever gets invited back. So if, if you have an opportunity to say something and you're one of the rare comics that gets chosen to do this, say something. We'll talk about his experience as a Muslim going to high school in Davis, California after September 11th about his experiences at the Republican National Convention, and he is kind enough to tell me a truly stupid joke. Then later, I'll talk to the great Sharon Horgan, co-writer and star of Amazon's Catastrophe. It's a very dark comedy about a relationship born from a one-night stand. It paints a hilarious, sometimes bleak picture of early parenthood that's brutal and honest because Sharon 
and her co-writer Rob Delaney have been there themselves. She looked four months old. Um, she had the face of a sumo wrestler. And she was handed to me and I just thought, oh my God, I'm never going to bond with you. I was lucky because two hours later, she was the love of my life. And finally, in our outshot, a tribute to Prince. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. First up this week, Hassan Minaj. We talked in 2016. When was the last time you really confronted someone? Like, they're standing in front of you, you have to say something that could make the two of you really uncomfortable, and then you say it? You just say it? My guest, Hassan Minaj, grew up Muslim and Indian American in the small city of Davis, California, outside Sacramento. He was confronted early on by things that made him uncomfortable, like the time he overheard his dad get a death threat over the phone just after 9-11. He went to school at the University of California at Davis where he assumed he would study and get a good job, one where he wouldn't spend too much of his time confronting anything. But while he was at school, he ended up watching a friend's copy of the Chris Rock stand-up special, Never Scared, and he saw something that kind of blew his mind. Here was Chris Rock standing on stage talking about things that mattered to Hassan, confronting them in a way that he hadn't seen before, things like race and what it feels like to be a minority, alienated in the United States. He was so taken by the special, he ended up getting involved in the comedy scenes of nearby Sacramento and then the Bay Area. He met folks like W. Kamau Bell, who would have a major influence on him. And after winning some stand-up contests and a few minor roles on TV, he landed a job at The Daily Show. Hassan, how are you feeling, feeling right now? Trevor, like many Americans, I have spent the last 12 hours refreshing the Canadian immigration website, which keeps crashing. So I am panicking because melanin doesn't rub off. Then he got asked to do the White House Correspondents' Dinner, the first ever in the Trump era. You know, a lot of people told me, Hassan, if you go after the administration, it would be petty, unfair, and childish. In other words, presidential. So here we go. And now he has his own TV show. It's called Patriot Act. You can watch it on Netflix, a fresh episode every week. It's topical, acerbic, and very, very funny. When Obama took office, he continued Bush-era policies, and his deportation numbers were astronomical. Now, if you're shocked by that, you obviously are forgetting his campaign slogan, yes, we can kick out more Guatemalans. (laughs) You guys never heard the whole thing. You were cheering too loud. You never let him finish. Now, Hassan, I was just talking with my producer before we went on the air about the last time I saw you, which was backstage at a television pilot. Uh, Yeah. And uh, it was unfortunately a pilot that didn't go, but it was a very funny show. And uh, I had just just done a bit on the show, and you were just about to do a bit on the show. And I was sitting back there, you know, behind some curtains, looking at some monitors as they went from cue to cue. And... I had this thought, which I didn't express to you at the time, uh, which was uh, just kind of looking at you and how handsome you are. (laughs) I gather from your show that maybe that was something you had to work at. (laughs) Yeah. It it wasn't until recently where, you know, hey, uh, Indian culture, yoga, all of this stuff, meditation – this stuff has become sort of nouveau riche, chic, cool, cutting edge. That period of time, 
you were sort of, you know, lumped into, you know, this weird, you know, quickie mart terrorist territory, coupled with the fact that, hey, look, Cal Penn hadn't broken yet. Aziz Ansari hadn't broken yet. Mindy Kaling hadn't broken. Kumail Nanjian. All these diverse, new, interesting brown voices hadn't broken yet. So just the sheer possibility of me ever being on like television, it seemed impossible. So were you thinking when you were a teenager, when you were in high school, were you thinking, I'm going to get out of Davis? Or were you thinking, I'm going to get some graduate degrees and a good job? Yeah. I was going to do the interlude tracks on college dropout. <laughs> I was going to sack up some degrees and then and then yeah, just get a get a good job. And so that's 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 really what I thought was going to happen and it wasn't until we didn't have cable television my freshman year of college at UC Davis a buddy of mine had downloaded Chris Rock's Never Scared and this truly dates this. this that was 2004 that special came out. I go into his room and he's watching it and it clicked for me in that moment. I go, "Oh, stand-up comedy to me." Oh, it's just funny speech and debate. I had done speech and debate in high school. Ah, that's the dorkiest thing I've ever heard anyone say. Yeah. But Jesse, it's just isn't it? funny speech and debate. Okay, I, see, I see someone do stand-up like, that's totally like integrals. <laughs> this is my calling. Uh, yeah. it was. I was like, this is funny speech and debate. And that's when I went on my deep dive and – the, the comedians that I fell in love with were great speech and debaters. I think Greg Giraldo, may he rest in peace, would have been would have been amazing at forensics. And uh, so all, all those, you know, I started thinking about that. And it wasn't until after doing it 10, 11 years that then, you know, it all clicked together with The Daily Show. But I, I never thought that that was going to happen. I, I, I really, yeah, I, I thought I was just going to go to grad school and yeah, and, and get a job. I think that the fact that you started doing stand-up comedy in uh, Sacramento in the Bay Area seems significant to me because it's a scene that is not quite big enough to really break down into sub-scenes. But it is also, you know, it's a place that's full of all different kinds of people and so on and so forth. And, And for that reason, it seems to me like a great opportunity for especially comics of color to learn how to share their experience with those kinds of audiences that we talked about. You know, it's the place where W. Kamau Bell can learn to do jokes for an audience that's 50% white, 20% black, 20% Asian American, 10% Latino, whatever. Right. Right. Like I can figure out the cognitive framework to make this joke work. I I, got to translate this experience. Right. Where Arch Barker and Al Madrigal and whoever the people are, are all going on together in a row. Yeah. I mean, I got got this awesome experience where I can't believe some of the lineups I got to perform on. Me, Ali Wong, W. Kamau Bell, Al Madrigal, Shang Wang, Louis Katz, Moshe Kasher. It's like, look at the, you know, it's literally like a walking joke, like a Jew, a black guy, da da da, and we'll all walk into a bar. Like, and yet our audience might be an audience in like Fairfield, which is even more like boonie ish than Davis or Sacramento. And, you know, I was doing the thing where, in comparison to the Bay Area, Sacramento was a scene that was really kind of looked down upon. Like the comics that came from SAC to SF. Even though some of them are great, you know, Mike E. Winfield is a phenomenal Sacramento comedian, a bunch of guys. It was still one of those things where it's like, oh, you're, you're coming from Sacramento. But that idea, I was almost like a road comic even when I was starting, even when I 
was starting in my hometown because I would drive to San Francisco, drive to Fairfield, drive to Vallejo, drive to Pleasanton, Sunnyvale, you know, the East Bay, everywhere. You're doing shows in Vallejo? Yeah. At the, at, the, at Pepper Bellies. Sickwood oh. oh Comedy Club? Yeah, Sickwood Comedy Club. Yeah, owned by E40. Yeah, it's at Marine World Africa, USA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Just some fun Vallejo stuff we know, folks. Yeah, yeah some just Vallejo inside jokes. You guys will get it. Then hit up the outlets at, uh, you know, Vacaville <laughs> on the way back. You guys know. You guys have, that, that have trekked sure. 80 West. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Listeners overseas. <laughs> um, the first time I met you, you were a guest on my comedy show, Jordan, Jesse, Go. Yes. And um, at the time, the project that you were working on was a documentary series funded, uh, I think, substantially by the Gates Foundation. Correct. Uh, about comedy around the world. Right. You traveled to the absolute furthest points of stand-up comedy. Yes. I mean, you went to what? You went to South Africa. Where did you go? India and South Africa. Yes. And I wonder what, um, you know, what you saw when you got there. Because you know, we think of stand-up comedy as a very specifically American form. Correct. Um, so, what does it mean to do stand-up comedy? 6,000 miles from here. When I went to South Africa, the thing that blew me away was people's ability to joke and talk about race. There wasn't this idea of it's, – it, it's amazing. When I got there, the comedians were so envious of our ability to have freedom of speech. They're like, man, we love your guys' podcasts, your roasts, your TV shows because you guys can just eviscerate your politicians and nothing will really happen to you. In India, that wasn't the case. If you go after certain politicians, they'll slap a lawsuit on you. Cops might show up. Things might happen even though it's a democratic country. There's still certain – there's severe censorship in certain capacities. And what I was so amazed by is that these comics in South Africa and India still were taking their shots despite the risks. They were like, no, we got to talk about politics. And what blew my mind is that specifically in South Africa – Black comics were on stage making fun of Afrikaners, the people that had literally imprisoned them and put them through apartheid to their face. And both sides were laughing. And to me, I was like, this type of dialogue is still a niche thing in America. You know, like to have an audience that's that sort of quote unquote woke where both sides, the oppressor and the oppressed, can sort of like equally throw, you know, barbs and laugh at the ridiculousness of the past. It really was, to me, grounded in this article that I recently saw in the New York Times where it said that 67% of white people refused to post articles about race on social media. It reminded me of going back and I'm like, man, that's why I missed doing stand-up in Johannesburg and I missed doing stand-up in Bangalore and Delhi and Bombay because I, I see comics there taking real chances. And I see audiences kind of being down. Afrikaners are a, are a minority in South Africa. Correct. Um, they have they have to think about their own race every day walking down the street because there's a lot more non-Afrikaner people around. Correct. But if I'm walking down the streets of Los Angeles, there's mostly white people even in Los Angeles. Yes. Uh, and especially here in Culver City. Yeah. And uh, so I don't have to even think of myself as white. I don't even have to think of – I could just be uh, neutral. I'm right. just a guy and then right. other people – race is a thing other people have. Correct. Yeah, it's just this uh, – I talk about it in the show, in the video game of life. I'm lucky. Like I think privilege is something that all of us can recognize. 
My dad is from this generation where he feels if you've immigrated to this country, there's this thing called the American dream tax that you pay. You're basically going to have to endure some level of racism. And if it doesn't cost you your life, you lucked out. And for me, I'm like, no, well, hey, I'm born here. I'm an American. And I was in honors gov. And I learned right here on the American dream receipt that all men are created equal, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Like, I shouldn't have to endure any of that. And I kind of explore that idea in the show. Who's more right there, you know? And I've even recognized my own privilege despite the things that I've gone through growing up. Hey, sometimes I start to think like my dad. Oh, boo-hoo, you couldn't go to the dance with that girl or you couldn't do this or they called you a camel jockey. At least your spine isn't getting shattered in the back of a police wagon. And then there's no justice being served to that. So, hey, if this is all you have to pay for being here, you lucked out, Hassan. Be grateful. But then I pivot again and I'm like, wait, isn't the fight, isn't the struggle, isn't this the uncomfortable conversation that we're having, isn't that where progress happens? Right? If we just stopped at like, well, women can vote now. Let's not talk about the equal play, equal pay thing. Let's just give it a rest. It's that little it, – we keep moving the needle forward. So hopefully we can live up to the ideals that we initially wrote. Let's talk a little bit about you, Hassan, uh, hosting the Radio and Television Correspondents Association uh, Congressional Dinner. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, this is something that you did recently. Yeah. So uh, let's let's take a listen to a, a clip of you hosting the the Congressional Correspondents Dinner. Um, so you you've been you've been sort of joking about the presidential candidates. You've been joking about the media. Yeah. Um, and now you're turning your attention to Congress. It's so mean of me to talk about a job that you guys will never have. I mean, oh, 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 every member of Congress wants to be president. Let's be real. There's a senator named Sheldon Whitehouse. That is the most ambitious name for a title you will never have. That's like my name being Hassan, head of Homeland Security. It's just not happening. No. Let's just be real. Everybody here in the media, they're hard on Congress. They're hard on you guys. They say you're a do-nothing Congress, but you guys do a lot. You guys do, don't let anybody tell you otherwise, you guys uh, go to fundraisers, you guys host fundraisers, you have your staff set up fundraisers for you to host, that's three things right there, and that doesn't even include all the time you spent trying to repeal Obamacare or not passing gun control. That's five things you guys do. What I love about that clip is <laughs> the, the precipitous decline in laughter through the course of yeah. that joke. I'm listening to this and I'm like, Hassan, you're trying really hard. <laughs> you can, he- Jesse, you can hear, I'm, I'm trying so hard. Well, as you turn from funny name joke yeah. to pointed critique joke, yeah. you just hear people going from like, ha ah, ha, to like, ha ah, ah, ha, ha, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it was one of those things where I realized, you know, working at The Daily Show, so many of my friends, whether working at our show or Sam's show or Larry's show, we're all we, – we are all like screaming out into our base of people that will shower us in retweets and love. This was a rare opportunity, like three days coming out of Orlando to speak directly to members of Congress. 
I mean, it's a big deal to meet with your congressperson for 10 minutes. Like if you write a letter to your congressperson's office, I'm going to be in Washington, D.C., can I shake hands with you? If they say yes, that's a big deal. And you got a job where your job is to stand in front of all of them. Right. Plus all of the media that cover them. Correct. And tell their story. Correct. All at once. Right. And there's another layer to it is that the people that were watching on, you know, the hotbed that is C-SPAN 3 – it was – there was this other layer where I was like, I also have to contextualize this to the people that are watching at home. Why why congressional inaction is such a ridiculous notion? You know, as a stand-up comic, everything that you do is about that audience that's in front of you. you right. know, that's why there's a live audience at Saturday Night Live and there's a live audience on so many sitcoms. Right. It's because when you are doing comedy – you are beholden to those people standing in front of you Correct. and getting them to laugh. Yes. So it must have taken some psyching up for you to decide, I'm going to do some jokes that are going to be for the people on the other side of the camera. Yeah. Well. And when I say on the other side of the camera, I mean at home watching television. Yeah. Or that. I don't think the folks from C-SPAN were super into it. <laughs> right, 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 right. And they were sitting on the dais. Um <laughs> If you They're watch, like, God, I, I want to get over to book talk. Right, 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 right. Look, if you look at the the video, I think the clip is on YouTube, but when they actually call me up, you can see I'm visibly nervous because the whole night up to that point, everybody was high-fiving each other. They're like, media, you do a great job. Congress, you do a great job. Now let's give it up for the comedian. And I was like, okay, I'm going to say some stuff and it might not go over well. And essentially for the first 18 minutes – it was comedy and the, I pivot to the last four minutes and, I, you know, it's basically like, look, we don't need your thoughts and prayers. The first clip that we heard was a, a ways in yeah. after you've done all of your uh, – some Congress people have distinctive manners of dress or funny names. Sure, jokes, yeah. Um, that you were – you know, that's in the contract. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, you basically so so this this was all this all happened just a couple of days after Orlando. Yeah. And um, and so you have just you have just talked about Congress getting donations from the National Rifle Association Correct. as as we head into this club. There are 294 sitting members of Congress that have accepted contributions from the NRA, and that doesn't even include the millions of dollars from outside lobbying. So before I get up here in my liberal bubble and I ask for gun control and universal background checks and banning assault rifles, we got to be able to have the conversation. And right now, specifically Congress, has blocked legislation for the CDC to study gun-related violence. We can't even talk about the issue with real statistics and facts. So I don't know if this is like a Kickstarter thing, but if $3.7 million dollars can buy political influence to take lives. If we raise $4 million, would you guys take that to save lives? So in that, I, I, there was a joke that had no laughs, <laughs> that literally got zero. So Correct. that's, I, you, you know. Can hear, I could hear the echo through these headphones. <laughs> I could hear the echo of that mic. Dude, Jesse, I'm like... I'm getting nervous for me now. And that was a long time. I'm like, oh, man, you're really tanking, buddy. You are tanking up there. Because you're a comedian. You are hired. Right, right. You are hired. 
you're the entertainment. You're hired. You're there to entertain but people. Am, but, but also at the same time, I remember I had a really great conversation with my buddy Trayvon Free, who's a, who's a former writer for The Daily Show. He's a writer on Any Given Wednesday with Bill Simmons now. Trayvon was telling me – and I remembered the sentence. Trayvon goes, dude, you, you don't want to be Trey Gowdy's friend. You're not there to like make Mitch McConnell feel happy about himself. No one ever gets invited back. So if if you have an opportunity to say something and you're one of the rare comics that did that gets chosen to do this out of the handful that they have they've asked in the past, say something. I'm Jesse Thorne. You ever find yourself watching or listening to the news and wondering if something's missing in the way that we talk about politics in this country? My guest, Hassan Minaj, does. And he's figured out what it is. He'll tell me after the break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at SierraNevada.com. Think of Life Kit as that friend who always has the best tips about everything how to invest your money, how to get in a good workout, and much more. Life Kit, tools to help you get it together. Check it out in Apple Podcasts or at npr.org/slash Life Kit. Hey, everybody, this is Jay Keith Van Stratton, host of Go Fact Yourself, a live game show here in the Maximum Fun Network. On Go Fact Yourself, we take the smartest people we know and make them look dumb. Oh, by the way, how much do you know about chicken husbandry? You gotta give them that grain. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you gotta give them that grain. And then smart again. What future Hall of Fame pitcher for the Cleveland Indians became the first active player to enlist? Bob Feller. When- oh, okay. <laughs> We've got me co-host Helen Hong, plus celebrity guests and actual surprise experts. All right, we have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Is Helen. it Alan Amy? Helen, who do we have tonight? Alan Havey! Alan Havey! In the coming weeks, you can hear guests like Maria Bamford, Tom Bergeron, Paul F. Tompkins, Janet Varney, and Grant Imahara. Check us out on the first and third Friday of every month here on the Maximum Fun Network. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Hassan Minaj. You know him as a correspondent on The Daily Show, which he did up until August of 2018. You might have seen him at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, too. That was in 2017. Now he's got his own TV show. It's called Patriot Act. It airs every week on Netflix. You've gone to both conventions. Yeah. Um, and... It seems to me like to some extent you, that in some way you are there to make friends that part of what is within your control is um, showing enough kindness and empathy toward people who are w- well-meaning but, yeah, um, you know, ignorant or – and I don't even mean ignorant in a super judgmental way but just don't have experience dealing with – Uh, some of the problems of America that you care most about. Yeah. To me, one of the things that I wanted to add to The Daily Show or even like the one-man show is I want to put, you know, even though there's moments where people go, oh, man, props, man, you really skewered them. You really gave it to them. To me, one of the things that I think has been missing from all this dialogue, 
especially because everything gets reblogged and you know so and so eviscerates the right and vice versa is personal sort of empathy and putting your own skin in the game. And when I did this clip at the RNC called Hassan's farewell tour of that if Trump were to become president, I'm going to get deported. So I just wanted to say goodbye to all the delegates for, uh, from the states that I'll never get to visit. So I went up to you know the delegate from Alabama and gave her a big old hug and said bye. I had her sign my American yearbook. Um, you know, I asked her if she'd be my you know my my uh, pen pal in the camps. I don't know what type of Wi-Fi we'd get there. It's so all, all that sort of stuff. But I wanted to look her face to face in the eye and go, I'm not just some esoteric number that you read in a Breitbart article or that you see in a Facebook status update about how Islam hates us and your brown neighbor has come to kill you. Like, look at me in the eye in this moment and you don't think I'm a bad person, right? And even their racism was a little little adorable. They're like, no, you're one of the good ones. Your family is Muslim. Correct. Are you? Yes. What does it mean to you? That's a really great question. Um, For the longest time growing up, I felt like my childhood and adolescence was really defined by America's war on terror. And growing up as a teenager and then in my 20s, it was like, wow, Islam was looked at as something that was like so foreign and so other and so weird and scary. And it wasn't until, you know, as I got older that I realized, no, like Islam has very deep roots in American history. See slavery. 40% of the slaves were Muslim. I realized how important Islam has been and Muslims have been to America and for America with the death of Muhammad Ali. I think for too long the conversation has been around this idea that there's your American or the, or your Muslim and Muhammad Ali and let's not whitewash his legacy was all of those things. It was amazing. That was amazing. He was a champion. He was a black man. He was a Muslim and he fought for what he really believed in. And it, all of those things. An, not just an American Muslim, but an American who chose to be Muslim. Exactly. And had to give up a lot to make that Correct. choice. And, I, and, and can you imagine when he, he announced that my name is no longer Cassius Clay, I'm Muhammad Ali. I mean, it, it really did shake up the world. It was, it was crazy at the time. And it continued to be throughout his career. But when he passed, I was so proud to be an American Muslim because I was like, that this country get, gives you the potential to do that. Now, it was a huge uphill battle, but he was remembered as a champion and as an American. And it's great that in the wake of his death, also Kaiser Khan at the, D- the DNC presented himself on stage and talked about the death of his son. And people have to reckon with that. In the wake of their Islamophobia and their fear, they have to also realize that people like Kaiser Khan have sons that are sacrificing their life for this country. How do you feel about the relationship between your identity as a Muslim yeah. and uh, the fact that I think a lot of people, when they think of Muslim, they're sure. not thinking of a Desi person. They're not thinking of a Southeast Asian person. Right. They're not thinking of an African person. Right. They're thinking of a very specific ISIS. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's literally what is it? One point eight billion. So it's like one out of four people in the world. One out of four. One out of five is is Muslim. We are here. We've been here, and yet it's believed that it's this margin thing. And I think 
what's interesting is I felt a lot of solidarity with the Latino community as well, where people feel like, I don't really know a lot of Hispanic people. It's like, no, trust us. They're everywhere. You know, especially when politi- when politicians talk about the yeah. Latino community, they talk about it in a monolithic way that does not reflect the Latino community in the United States, yeah. much less in the world. Like, sure. That you know, like they they talk about they talk about the experience of being Latino as though being a you know white skinned Cuban in New York is the same as being a dark skinned Salvadorian in Los Angeles yeah. or uh, or you know a, a Puerto Rican whose family exactly. lives in Vermont or exactly. whatever. Yeah, and it lacks like the nuance and depth and layers. It's I think the same thing goes for Muslims around the world. It's like, yeah, I do look my life experience is different from say an Egyptian Muslim or a Palestinian Muslim or and we're united through this shared sort of religious experience, but there's nuance and and layers to all of that. And and look, I think that when politics gets involved, it does really speak to it in like one broad stroke. Right now, you talk about specifically with the Latino community, they just mean Illegal alien Mexican illegal aliens, but they're lumping everybody into that. So it's it's it's, it's weird, man. I imagine it must have been an odd experience, and I'm I, this is a pure flight of fancy for me. So yeah, tell me if this was not your experience. But you know, I, I'm imagining that you know September 11th happened when you were what, like a teenager, right? Yeah, I was a sophomore in high school. Yeah, so I can only imagine that when September 11th happened. Your relationship with all these white people around you yeah. really changed in terms of what you were to them. That you, you know, up until you're 15, you're thinking of your primary point of difference as being the color of your skin, yeah. or the fact that you're Indian, yeah, um, or Indian American, I should yeah. say. And then, uh, you know, September 11th happens, and all of a sudden, maybe the first category of other that you are is Correct. Muslim. Yeah, that was such a clear shift. And then another thing happened. September 12th, I remember that night my dad held this like executive meeting at our dinner table. He was like, Hassan, whatever you do, don't tell people that <laughs> don't tell people that you're Muslim and don't talk about politics. And I was like, cool, I'm just going to just hide it. Thanks, dad. Our phone rings. There's these kids, they're prank calling us. I grab the second phone. I'm like running to the second phone. And then these kids are like, "Hey, hey you camel jockey, where's Osama?" My dad's like looking at me. And he's like, what? I don't understand what you're saying. He's like, I'm sorry. I think you have the wrong number. No, I'm going to kill you. Click. Now I'm like freaked out. And I'm also embarrassed because my dad's looking at me and I'm his son. I'm this guy who can walk two different worlds. I know Desi culture. I know American culture. And I basically watched these kids ridicule and threaten us. I just let it happen. We sit back down. Foomp, foomp, foomp. I hear these thuds outside. We run outside, me and my dad. The Camry, our car, all the glass is shattered all over the driveway. So I'm running up and down the cul-de-sac. And I'm looking for them. And then I look into the middle of the street. And my dad is just like sweeping up glass out of the street like he works at a hate crime barbershop. Like, oh, the next customers are coming. And he's so calm. Like he has this sense of calm. I run up to him I'm like, why aren't you mad? Like what's wrong with you? And he says this thing in Urdu. He's like, Hassan, Like, Hassan, these things happen, and these things will continue to happen. This is the price we pay. You, as a teenager, experienced a really formative 
uh, incident of racism. Right. And uh, that was at like uh, – uh, was it prom? Yes. Around prom. Yes. So obviously like the most important part of any adolescence, adolescence. Sure, you know, sure, sure. Or at least designed to be. But it was also first love really. Right. It's like the first person I love, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, the denouement of the story is you essentially seeking personal revenge. Right. And having to – come to terms with reconciliation yeah <laughs> instead yeah and realizing that anger and revenge isn't really the solution i mean look i can point to you and say that you're wrong that doesn't fix that doesn't fix the problem at hand really the the question of the show is is hey in the wake of san bernardino Orlando, Paris, could 2016 Hassan Minaj still go to the dance with 2016 Bethany Reed? And to me, I see the state of the country, and I'm saying that's a 50-50 ball. We're like in the midst of history. Like this is stuff we're going to tell our kids about. We're going to be in history books. The, you know, the, the photos won't be black and white. They'll be in color. But it's like, do we want to tell them that we were on the right side of history? The photos will be of you. You're very handsome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> right. um, that would be so creepy if I was like in a scholastic textbook. The, picture, so... the picture on the front of the history book uh, uh, will be you and me together. Yeah. And it will say, uh, and it will say 21st, 21st century hero Hassan Minaj <laughs> Stop and it. a white guy. Actually, I, I hope that photo has both of us with our Jordans next to each other, and be like, "Look, yeah, we have not addressed our we matching have not, shoes. We have not this even talked time. about that, man." So, I so what uh, what Air Jordans are you wearing? I'm so? wearing the Air Jordan One Band. This okay. was the first black and red colorway, the infamous colorway. It's coming out again this September second. But this was the first shoe that you know Michael Jordan infamously wore, and the the league banned it because it didn't have enough white in the shoe. Very fitting because we're talking about race in the show, in the show a bunch. Should we do uh, like do a quick knock knock joke? Or mm-hmm. so the panda bear walks into a bar and he says, "Let me get a coke and let me get a burger." Guy guy gives him a coke and a burger. Panda bear eats the coke and the burger. He walks out the door. The bartender goes, "Hey, are, are you, what are you doing?" The panda bear turns around, pulls out a revolver, revolver, fires two shots into the air, and now he's about to close the door of the bar. Bartender grabs him and goes, "Hey, panda, you cannot just walk out of my bar like that. Are you out of your mind?" Panda Bear pulls out an encyclopedia, gives it to the bartender and says, look it up, buddy. Bartender opens the encyclopedia. It says Panda Bear. Eats, shoots, and leaves. Jesse, it's been an honor being on this podcast. Thank you so much, man. Hassan Minaj from 2016. Patriot Act is on Netflix now. Give it a watch. Also, if you haven't seen his special Homecoming King from 2017, it's wonderful. Go watch it. My next guest is Sharon Horgan. She's a brilliant writer and actor. She co-created and stars in the TV show Catastrophe. Catastrophe is sort of a different kind of romance. It's a British TV show. It runs on Amazon here in the States. It's about a slightly lost school teacher and a slightly dopey American ad guy who hook up in London. They think it's basically just a particularly memorable one-night stand until they realize she's pregnant. Then... Eventually, 
they fall in love. It's a slightly hokey premise, told without an ounce of hokiness. It's gross and rough and scary. The characters aren't anti-heroes. They're just human beings who mess up sometimes, sometimes a lot. And the show is really, really funny. I talked to Sharon in 2016, right as the second season of Catastrophe was taking off. It's now on its fourth season, which will hit TVs across the United States soon. Sharon co-created the show with Rob Delaney, who's also her co-star. Here's a scene from Catastrophe's second season. At this point, the two stars are married. Two kids, whole new set of problems. Horgan's character has been staying home with the baby. She basically doesn't know anyone except the people from her mommy group, almost all of whom she hates. There's only one with whom she bonds. They sort of bond in class, but when Sharon tries to make friends with her outside of class, she ends up getting the cold shoulder. So anyway, Rob comes home from work one day, and Sharon wants to vent to him. I got dumped today by my mum friend, Samantha. She doesn't want to see me anymore. I couldn't even hang on to a mum friend. And it's not like she's all that. It's not like she's Beyonce. She said I should go and hang out with the mumbies, and you know what? She's right. Every single one of those mums is probably more interesting than me. Rob. What? What I just said. You're not going to say anything. Do you not care? Right now... I don't know that I do care about that. I mean, we've got two kids under the age of three. My job is a nightmare, and those things use up all my daily care units. So sometimes, when you need attention at the end of the day, I got nothing left for you. And, you know, I know that's not fair, but what do I do? You dig deep, and you scrounge something up for me. Don't be lazy. What do you want me to say? Say she sounds like a She does sound like a I'll kill her for you. Do you know how happy that would make me? I got plenty of hate units left. (laughs) (laughs) It's really weird hearing that without the visual and hearing Rob make the kind of noise, I can't even do it, (laughs) and not see his face. It was this weird kind of dislocated sound. Rob does, I mean, one of the interesting things to me about Rob Delaney's new career as a British comedian and actor, (laughs) uh, he now lives in London, having moved from here in Los Angeles, is that Rob is like a parody of an American person. Like Fred (laughs) Willard or something. In real life. Well, like, yeah, I mean, just he just is like... Uh, he has he's very handsome in a very sort of smiling and genial way and he just has a kind of like hello quality to him we just fall for that <laughs> hook line and sinker i mean he's he's charming the english ladies all over the place they can't get enough of him he's sort of like he actually sort of reminds me of like when a british comedian is doing an American guy, and he's like, oh, how are you? Would you like a casserole? <laughs> but that's how he is in real life. I mean, that's yeah. how he, he operates. He's, you know, he's is very specific <laughs> individual. Um, but that's what's so funny about him. Now, you had had, uh, you've had a, a long television career in the UK. Uh, you created a show called Pulling, which was very deeply beloved, but Rob, until, I don't know, four years ago, maybe three, four years ago, uh, wasn't even working full-time in comedy. Yeah, I know. When the two of you started talking about creating a show, was it always going to be a uh, romance? 
Oh, no. Oh, God, no. Um, we didn't even, uh, really truthfully, we didn't realise it was um, a romance or a romantic comedy or whatever you call it until we were screening it. We had a screening <laughs> at, uh, at BAFTA and we showed um, the first two episodes and then we were brought up on stage, you know, to have the chat and uh, the lady who was interviewing us described it as a romantic comedy and we were like... Oh, really? Oh, all right then. Um, we definitely never set out to do that. We just wanted to explore a, a long-term relationship and, and how, you know, sometimes it's just easier to stay together than go through the mind of, you know, having to part. And um, sorry, are you allowed to swear? No, not at all. Oh, I'm so sorry. Just that it would be... <laughs> Honestly, I'm I'm more upset by your idea that uh, probably a good premise for a television show is sometimes it's easier just to not break up. <laughs> that I'm, was... Now I'm questioning my my own happy marriage. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> it's, you know it's true. Um, and in fact, that was almost our in, entire pitch um, for the show. And, and way, way back in the beginning when we were writing down ideas, we, we had this sort of ridiculous idea that um, they would spend a lot of time talking about the weighing up the pros and cons. Like maybe in every episode we'd see them list the reasons why they should stay together and why they should part and, you know, go in favour of the staying together. Thank God we didn't do that because that's a terrible um, idea. But the essence of that was kind of in there. And I think the reason why it sort of ended up being a romantic comedy is because we ended up spending the first series focusing on them kind of getting together and them falling in love while she becomes more and more pregnant. And and I another reason why it became romantic comedy is that for some reason we're kind of <laughs> good together on screen. You know, that it's sort of... Uh, there's an inherent kind of, I don't know, sort of sweetness there. Thank God, because the material is quite tough, you know, and I think uh, that helps sort of um, balance it a bit, you know. So I, I want to ask you a question about tone. One of the things that's interesting to me about catastrophe is that as brutal and unpleasant and unsparing as the tone is, as much as it's about the problems of relationships and parenting, it's not about these two characters being jerks. Like, not that they're perfect or anything, but, like, the premise isn't what happens when two jerks are so lovable that you just got to love them. And I imagine that must have, to some extent, been a choice, to let them be, like, people just doing their best. Yeah. I, I also think it's hard to make certainly a comedy... Well, it's harder to make a comedy when you have a proper anti-hero as, as the main character and when you have an unlikable um, person. I, I think, you know, you can have flawed characters, of course, and um, it works in, that works in drama and in comedy. But um, I think all we wanted to do was to make them like you or me. Well, not you. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I am a real antihero. <laughs> um, we just we wanted to give them flaws and we wanted them to, you know, have hang ups and be selfish and all of those things. But for me, it was exciting. I mean, going back to what you were saying earlier, that there was a, a, a male character who was allowed to be a nice guy who at times under duress 
very happy to be a jerk. So, um, <laughs> well, he, and, has, he has this kind of he has this kind of heedless quality that you heard in that clip, like this that also registers as very American to me. Which is when he says, "I can work anywhere in advertising in Boston." <laughs> he doesn't even say it out of self regard. It's just this kind of blind acceptance that, as a white American dude, he's just king of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's you know nothing to be proud of though, is it? <laughs> um, but and I think um, with Sharon's character, it, it's um, I think she has uh, she's much more of a jerk than him, or at least um, is doesn't care if um, people think she's a jerk. You know, she's she's um, that that was fun to write and sort of. Because I think I've kind of become a bit more like that <laughs> over the years. Um, I used to care so much <laughs> about what what people think of me, and and you know you just kind of get old and gnarly, and you stop um, you stop worrying about all that. And it was nice to put that sort of into um, a, a female character where she's just like, "This is who I am, and what you see is what you get," kind of thing. I'll finish my conversation with Sharon Horgan after a break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org. And NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Withings, creator of the Wi-Fi Smart Scale. Meet your goals with a smart scale that delivers weight, BMI, and body composition, even a local weather report. See why Tom's Guide named Withings Body Plus the best overall smart scale of 2018. Visit withings.com slash NPR for 30% off any body composition scale. Withings giving people the tools they need to improve their lives. Hey, this is Guy Raz, and on the next TED Radio Hour, stories of remarkable transformations in the face of extraordinary circumstances. I often forget that my limbs are synthetic. That's how well they work. You can find the TED Radio Hour wherever you listen to podcasts. And rolling. The news today is terrible, so why not forget about it while listening to Jonah Radio uh, with Cash Hartzell. Hey, everybody. Featuring Neil Mahoney. Also me. This is a podcast where we play music submitted by a listener. We hang out, we listen to new tunes, and uh, we take submissions at JonahRadio, R-A-Y-D-I-O, at gmail.com. Come and check us out. We're here anyway. Yeah, we'll yeah. be here. So, and that's it. Back to your regularly scheduled uh, podcast. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Sharon Horgan. She's a writer and an actor. Along with Rob Delaney, she co-created and stars in the great TV show Catastrophe, which you can watch on Amazon now. I want to ask you a question about uh, making this show. So, like, a a couple years ago, a friend of mine from high school got cast in romantic sex comedy on cable television. What's it called? It's called You're the Worst. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a great show. But uh, I watched it and I was like, oh, my God, this sex scene is intense and crazy and brutal. Uh, it's not, like, dark <laughs> at all. Well, it's a little bit dark. But, like, it's just... What happens? Sex. They... Just all kinds of stuff. Right. A broad variety of things. There's no nudity, but oh. all other things happen. Right, right. And the only other show that I've seen that has that feeling in the sex scenes is catastrophe that it is it's kind of like 
mad, flailing, gross, <laughs> but also fun and sexy. You are there. With Stop pointing at me. <laughs> my, you and Rob are there banging into each other. What is that like? Um, okay. So it's... Um, I think the really hard thing was writing that stuff um, because you're writing with your pal, you're sitting by your pal, you are just writing comedy and suddenly you realise you've written a really <laughs> graphic kind of revolting sex scene that you're going to have to perform with the uh, married father of three that's sitting um, beside you. So the, 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 the tricky thing about that was if we, if we ever stopped to think about it, we kind of froze because it felt wrong. So... Um, once we got over that, it was fine. And then I would say that um, the first time we had to snog, you know, the first kiss was the worst because I think he was so terrified of, um, I don't think he, he hadn't done any screen kissing. Um, I'd done my fair share of screen kissing. Um, I think he was, you know, he wanted to be a gentleman and um, he was like, Daphne, I am not going to get any tongue or saliva near this woman. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it was like, it was like, um, you know, it was it was the most un, unsexy, un kind of um, anything um, kiss you've you've ever experienced. So but once we got that out of the way. All the sort of vile sex acts we did post that were fun because it was uh, it was just um, how can we make this funny and how can we you know make this look um, like real sex and not you know TV sex because no one has sex like that and people don't look beautiful when they have sex they look ugly and they make stupid faces and they grunt and sometimes they fart and sometimes bad things happen and they sweat and um, so we kind of. We wanted. I'm surprised even that you said that it, it was sexy because I can't. well, it's absurd. I mean, I I I'll disagree with the, that. The two of you both look beautiful when you're having sex <laughs> on screen. You look fantastic, um, but there is like there is a quality to it which it's it isn't simply played as gross. Like it would be a different thing if the sole purpose of it felt like it was to be gross and funny, but instead it is more like reflective of what doing it is like. Yeah. Which is to say, like, it's a goofy thing. Yes. It's dumb, but it's also in some deep part of your brain, the number one most important thing that there is and the number <laughs> one, like, best, most gratifying thing there is. So the, it's like the two of those things, it's just you just accept the absurdity of it and the goofiness of it in a very sincere way, which is, I, I think, also just reflective of the way that the show treats uh, Sharon and Rob's relationship. You know, you could all those things that you can say about love, you could you, uh, that you could say about sex, you can also say about love and being in a relationship. Like, it's weird and dumb and ridiculous but also it's the most important thing yeah god that's completely true i think in the first series 
continuing to talk about the sex. The first series we knew we were going to have to have a lot of sex in there because they're just getting to know each other. And, you know, when you get to know someone first, the only thing you're interested in is is having sex with them. And it's a very specific time and it's a very specific kind of feeling that some people think is falling in love and, and isn't. And uh, so we knew we wanted to be as honest as possible about that and show them having enormous amounts of sex. And then in the second season... We knew that people liked the sex <laughs> and, uh, and watching it. But we were like, oh, no, this is like three years in. People have a lot less sex, especially when you've got, you know, two young kids. And so we had we were sort of torn between like being really honest about, you know, the sex in a, in a, in a long term relationship. Um, so, I mean, in the end, we, we sort of had to sort of straddle this thing where, it was kind of functional, you know, and to sort of um, find the, the, the kind of fun and, and the reality in that. But also I think, you know, by the end of the, or certainly in, in the middle of the, the second season, you, you know that they love each other, but you know that there's um, extreme difficulties there and there's like wandering eyes and there's, um, you know, a whole bunch of reasons why... Um, it's it's hard for them to sort of continue to be in love. But we also felt like, you know, they're still attracted to each other, you know, and uh, and so therefore people who are attracted to each other have sex. I, I want to ask you a little bit about your own life as a, uh, as a parent and as a married person. When you uh, when you were married, and I don't know how long you've been married, but when you were married, what part of it did you feel like you you didn't expect or or weren't prepared for? Um, I I don't know if I was prepared for any of it because um, you know, like with the show, I got pregnant very um, quickly um, by accident and we sort of shotgun married um, because my parents are Catholic and um, we came home to tell them the great news that we were getting married and then oh and yeah we're just we're going to have a baby sorry um, so I think um, I I didn't even think about it I didn't it wasn't it wasn't a kind of uh, I never felt like I wanted to be married it was never something I sort of was an aim of mine or it was just a thing that, that happened. And, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, Can I just don't get too romantic because the audience <laughs> won't buy it. No, but I mean, it, what's romantic is that we stayed together. And, and I think that's way more romantic. And I think what's romantic is that we probably like each other more now than we did when he, you know, asked me to marry him. So I don't know what I expected. I, I kind of, expected to feel a little different and I didn't and then um, I expected it to just motor on <laughs> and what it has become is kind of interesting and and I think w- what it's become is um, you know sometimes it's terrible and then you think this is um, this couldn't get any worse and then you stick it out you ride it out and then you suddenly go oh my god I can't believe I'm f- feeling like this about the person I hated two years ago. Let's take a listen to a scene from the second season of Catastrophe, starring and co-created by uh, my guest, Sharon Horgan. Um, So basically, 
they've got a toddler and a new baby, and in order to get all of their new baby visits done at once, they've invited all their friends and family over to the house for the day. It's just been brutal and awful, <laughs> and um, they're, I think, sitting in bed together talking about it. I think it may have been irresponsible for us to procreate. Okay. You're an alcoholic. Your mother's a card-carrying sadist. My dad can't remember my name. Fergal, well, nothing's been diagnosed, but, you know, there's obviously a few things wrong there. It's not looking good. Thank God you're so normal. <laughs> what do you think about what my mother was saying? About loving each other more than the kids? I think there's something wrong with her. Okay, good. I was worried it was just me. I just think, if you don't love the kids more than me, then you're not fit to be a mother. Of course I love them more than you. I'm not a sociopath. I haven't even bonded with my baby, and I still love her more than you. You haven't bonded with the baby? No. But do you think you might have a little postnatal depression? I don't know. No. I don't know. I... This is going to sound awful, but I just worry that I don't love her in the way I love Frankie. Is that why you gave her a crazy name? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I... Just the minute she came out, she scared me. She looked like an alien. Frankie was beautiful. Even the day he was born, he was just this tiny, beautiful little bean. He weighed four pounds. I mean, he was almost dark red, and he had a hairy back. He was a monster. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> That's um, when I had my second um, baby. That was my experience. Um, she was enormous. I mean, she was... <laughs> she looked... She looked four months old. Um, she had the the face of a sumo wrestler. She was monstrous, <laughs> and she was handed to me. And I was think I just thought, oh my god, I'm never going to bond with you. I was lucky because I like two hours later, she was the love of my life. But it was a weird kind of feeling of you know, temporary as it was, sort of desperation. Well, one of the weird things about working in show business is that. The patterns of work are so strange because, you know, I think many to most people uh, go to work and then come home um, with some kind of normalcy, some kind of regularity. And for many people who work in show business, especially film and television, th their life is either uh, not working or all-consuming work. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. when you're shooting something, you're working often more than 12-hour days. Mm -hmm. You know, you might be working 16-hour days or 18-hour days in some cases even. And you have been working on things that you are on camera for and writing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, <laughs> right now you have uh, Catastrophe on uh, Amazon Prime. You're working on a show for HBO. Uh, like the all-consumingness of that is must be very difficult. I mean, it's scary. It's very scary, but um, I kind of think uh, there's not much I can do about it. I mean, there's definitely choices that I could have made that would have um, um, freed up my life a bit more. But, uh, you know, I think if, uh, as a writer, especially more than even as an actor, you have to have a few projects on the go because so often things don't get picked up. And I've had lean periods. I've had, you know... A couple of years where, you know, I only made pilots and nothing happened. And so I always, always had um, several projects sort of, you know, ready to go. How about this one? And as it turned out, 
in the last two years, about three or four things kind of moved at the same time. And, uh, you know, I'm not Daniel Day-Lewis. I can't sort of take a year or two years off between films because no one would give a um, a, <laughs> a proverbial, you know, whatever about me. Um, they'd, and so, and it's my career and it's... Um, when it's going well, it genuinely makes me happy and it genuinely stops me from going mental. And so therefore I know I'm I'm a better parent and a better person um, because of it. I would be a nightmare um, if I wasn't working. I, I know that. I thought you were about to say I would be a nightmare if I were Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> I would, always I always would be, making shoes. I would be a great Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would fit him like a glove. Horgan's coming for you, Lewis. <laughs> Only to be you. Wait, is his surname Day-Lewis or is his first name Daniel Day? His first name is Daniel Day. That's very nice. Yeah, it's a good name. Do you feel secure now? I mean, I will stipulate that you're notably successful at this point (laughs) in your career and exceptionally good at what you do. But having... Come to success so late in your life as so a late, real as a real a adult, <laughs> a, a bit late, but as a real adult, not as a no, semi adult. Yeah. Does do you feel like that makes you feel more secure in uh, the success you've earned, or less? Definitely, I don't feel secure in any way. Definitely, think that you know, I still have that crazy thing of like stockpiling um, projects waiting for one or two or more to to fail. So, but that's not a bad thing. I definitely feel more secure in myself because, you know, there's, um, uh, I don't know, there's a a confidence that comes with age or, or, you know, a belief or whatever. And um, I feel very aware of the fickleness of the industry and I think that's a very positive thing. I, I don't expect anything from anyone. <laughs> um I you know, I'm I'm pessimistic but in, in a healthy way, I think. And uh so I, I don't think I would have those sort of um if you want to call them qualities, I don't know if they are flaws, um, if I hadn't sort of started a bit later because I feel like I've I've been through it all and I've kind of, you know, seen it and I I know the tricks. If you don't expect much from show business, do you still require something of it? Like, is it still important to you to have the approval and does it still hurt really bad when people disapprove? Which is, I'm presuming that you, like everyone else in all of entertainment, got into entertainment in part to get people to like you. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, it still um, re- really hurts. I mean, if something, you know, um, doesn't go or it doesn't even turn out as I've pictured it in my head, it, you know, it all um, it all hurts. And I but I don't I feel like, yeah, um, now I still obviously want approval, mainly from just my family. <laughs> but um, but I also feel like I just have a need to do it now, I, you know, um because like I said earlier, I, I think I would sort of lose my marbles um, if I didn't do it. And I kind of, you know, but but I think now I'm a little bit spoilt because I got, I've had, got to make shows that I actually really like and with people I really like and with people that I admire. And so that, that does kind of get in the way a bit because then you're like, that's all I want to do now. I don't want to do just anything. I don't want to just be employed. I don't want to be just busy. It needs to be something that I 
care hugely about. Well, Sharon Horgan, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on the show. It was <laughs> okay. really great to get to talk to you. Thank you. It's good to talk to you too. Sharon Horgan. The new season of Catastrophe will be out later this year. Now's a great time to get caught up. If you haven't seen it, you can stream it on Amazon Prime Video. Every now and then, we like to leave you with a culture tip from me. It's called The Outshot. This one's a favorite from back in 2016, recorded shortly after the passing of Prince. My wife and I went to see Prince at the Fillmore. It was Valentine's Day, maybe 10 years ago. We were lined up outside. We'd never been to one of his shows, and we were surrounded by the folks who'd gotten tickets through his fan club. And there was this tall guy, like 6'6", maybe, thin, black, maybe 40-something, dressed in this wild outfit. And he was walking down the line of people, and every person in line, he'd stop, give them a rose, and tell them that he loved them. For a minute, I was kind of struggling to figure out what was going on. Like, did this guy work for the promoter? Was this like getting a bobblehead at a baseball game? He didn't look high. He didn't seem crazy. He didn't want money. In fact, he didn't seem to want anything. By the time he got to us, it made sense to me. This was just a guy who wanted to share a feeling, just share something beautiful with each person, tell each person he loved them as they were. Look. Prince might have been the greatest pop musician of the last 50 years. He found number one hits on his garbage pile, and he played every instrument, and he synthesized all the genres, and he danced his rear off in all of that stuff. But it's not just that music. What he left for us was an idea and an example. He was this skinny, short, shy, fey black kid from a rough neighborhood, and he lived in an America where there were all of these cultural expectations of him. All these ideas based on all of that. And he didn't reject the categories people wanted to put him in. He transcended them. He made them completely irrelevant. It wasn't oppositional. It wasn't negative. Prince said it pretty simply. I am me. I'm doing my thing. And he invited everyone to come visit Paisley Park and do theirs. And so when I think of his leaving, I think of the people whose lives he helped define. I think of kids backed into corners in 1980s America by circumstance or birth or whatever. Weird kids and queer kids and kids who were bad at doing whatever it was that was expected of them. Prince didn't show them how to be Prince. He showed them how they could be themselves, that they could live without apology, love defiantly. Prince gave them a rose. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where our producer Kevin saw out the window a guy videotaping his friend trying to touch a goose. But you know what? It didn't work. Why? Geese don't like to be touched. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Shayna Deloria. Our interstitial music comes from Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Thanks, as always, to Dan for sharing it. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for providing it to us. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, there are hundreds on our website. 
Just go to MaximumFun.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.